I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. I have several bullshit job stories. The most scandalous one is this. I spent from 2010 to 2018 working on a gigantic software project that got finally cancelled. Its purpose was to manage a public Spanish university and around 15 well-paid people worked full-time on it. This project was supposed to be deployed on production at January 1st 2012, but since it was so gigantic and complex, by that date only a tiny fraction was completed, let's say 2%. Despite the overwhelming evidence that this application was too complex to handle, our friendly Spanish government kept paying for it. 2012 passed by, 2013 passed by, 2014 passed by, 2015 passed by, 2016 passed by, it was just too much, there was no end in sight. It was like trying to build a whole city from scratch. Finally, in 2017, they decided to abort such mess. But because they didn't know what to do instead, we kept working on the project for months despite being already cancelled. We even kept having meetings with end users, showing them new functionalities, despite everybody knowing that they were not going to be used. It wasn't until early 2018 that our bosses, once and for all, told us to stop working on the project. Eight years of work were deleted and we have never talked about it since. Nobody was held responsible, nobody was fired, nobody was even publicly criticized. Officially, that project never existed and millions of euros weren't wasted on a horrifying, meaningless void. So that was one of our listeners from Spain. Listener and good friend, Daniel. Yes, who sent us that audio clip on his particular job, which has experienced uh, what some have now been calling bullshit this idea that there are a lot of jobs out there today that really just don't need to exist. They're just plain bullshit, right? And this, this term was coined by the anthropologist David Graeber initially in a 2013 article uh, in Strike magazine. And the concept is that there are tons of employees out there working for a boss, working for an organization who genuinely, by their own admission, believe that the work they're doing is pointless uh, that they have to pretend to work even though there's no work to be done, and that if their job or sometimes even the entire industry they work for were to disappear completely, well, society wouldn't miss it. In fact, we might even be better off. Uh, this has an extraordinary implications for the human psyche, for our emotional well-being, uh, not to mention the economics of our society. And David, this is kind of a good episode to follow last week's topic on loneliness, because I want to read you a comment that a listener left for us in our subreddit specifically about that episode. So this comes from Coffee Cat, and they say, quote, looking at the people in my life who are either clinically depressed, chronically miserable, 
or generally unhappy with their lives, I see common factors. The primary one is bullshit jobs. If you're spending half of your waking time and most of your energy on work that's unfulfilling, you'll have little time and energy remaining for most substantial endeavors. Compounding this is the pattern of putting on a phony face and pretending to like your job, which now creates a layer of separation between you and a large number of the people in your life. Ultimately, I believe that bullshit jobs are intrinsically linked to the concept of money. Any economy in which money exists is one where labor can and will be commodified and where workers can be persuaded or compelled in a fluid way and on an unlimited scale to do work which is valuable to some other party but not to themselves. And hence to collectively to form a machine in which each component labors solely for the benefit of some other part of the machine. According to the Torsivia hierarchy of need, (laughs) referring, David, to your five-point plan for addressing loneliness that you talked about last week, a lack of satisfying work should cause a deficiency in need number five. That was self-care. It causes people to dislike themselves. I believe this should be at the base of the hierarchy because those who like themselves are able to be themselves, to share themselves with others and form meaningful friendships, whereas people who dislike themselves are inclined to isolate themselves put on a phony face around others, and as a result, are more likely to lack the other needs in that hierarchy. I also believe that an essential ingredient for self-esteem is to do work that one feels proud of and sees as valuable. When this opportunity is denied to people, they dislike themselves as a result. And if this lack of self-esteem cascades to other parts of their lives, they're led to believe that this is because they have a mental disease or because they are failures. And when people feel this way, they seclude themselves. That's the end of the quote. And of course, that last part about feeling like a failure is only exacerbated by those individualistic uh, narratives that we talked about last week, like the ones to get rid of your loser friends and evaluate everyone in your life and cut those out who aren't making enough money and all that type of stuff. So I really love this comment, Daniel, and I realize I didn't respond to it on the subreddit, so sorry for that, Coffee Cap, but it, you nail It's okay, I did. You nail a lot of uh, really great concepts here, and it ties so closely to what we're talking about today, This the episode last week about loneliness, about alienation, to this idea of bullshit jobs, and the fact that the work that so many of us do, that we believe, even us, the ones doing it, is bullshit. And so we reached out online, we made some posts to different forums, we talked to different people, and asked, tell us, here, the Ashes Ashes boys, about your bullshit jobs. Because this is what's interesting, is so many of us, if you asked, is your work of consequence, do you think you're doing something important, or if you just disappeared or your job disappeared, would society care? A lot of us are going to say, yeah, you know, what I'm doing is bullshit, and that is absolutely true for me, Daniel, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on in this episode. So we reached out and we said, tell us your bullshit job stories. And we got so many responses to this. So we're just going to sort of give a couple of these very quickly and and talk about them. So one person wrote us to tell us about their job as a copy editor for a small local newspaper. And I'm going to summarize this and leave some information out to protect them. But most of what they're doing as a copy editor is just supposed to be sitting around and catching typos, uh, helping them adjust the edit. Uh, for the flow, the language, what they're trying to do with the piece, you know, polish it up so it looks really great and it's something of consequence once it's finally published. And this person is good at their job. They're getting 99% of their errors out of that paper, but it doesn't matter. Their boss is constantly berating them, double-checking all their work, basically doubling the amount of work that needs to be done on each of these edits for 
ostensibly some reasons of control or what they might call accuracy. But that aside, the bigger problem here is that they start influencing things in an editorial way where certain types of stories aren't being written, they're being canned because this person doesn't agree with them politically or ideologically. And this extends even farther to the journalists who are writing this stuff, who maybe want to write something that's negative about one of the local businesses who's doing something bad. But because this is a small local paper, dependent upon the advertising sources of these small local businesses, these journalists aren't able to write these stories. This copy editor can't allow these stories to pass through and be published because it'll bankrupt the paper, put everyone out of work, and end the business. So the very purpose of this newspaper is supposed to be talking about truth, problems in the community, uh, the journalistic things that people need to know to live their lives. But because of the double-sided realities of the economic situation of the paper and the dependence upon local advertising, lots of important stories are ignored, can't, and people are missing out on this vital information because it's not compatible with the economic model that exists. So what should be a real important job, publishing this information that everybody needs and making sure it's legible, the tone is right, that our copy editor friend is supposed to be doing, is made bullshit by the corruption of this system. So basically this person's a, a copy editor for a newspaper, but has no control over anything that, that ends up in the paper. Yeah, and the journalists don't have this control either. They can start writing a story, but it gets canned, even if it's an important, valuable story, because it could threaten the viability of the paper. A lot has been said about the censorship of newspapers and the, the underlying forces that kind of steer stories in a, a certain direction, leave some out. A lot of people know that concept by the name manufacturing consent. Citations needed, the podcast goes in depth on, on topics related to that. So there's no doubt there's a lot of bullshit in that industry. Um, here's another one that was submitted to us, David. Uh, this person says they work for a privatized ombudsman office, which is basically an organization that uh, monitors companies within a certain sector or industry based on the con uh, complaints they receive. And this particular company deals with power utilities. And so what this person's job is, is to collect complaints about various power companies. And then ostensibly, this company will try to reach out to these companies to address the underlying root causes of these problems. This person writes, in reality, the companies don't want to fix anything that would hurt their profits or take any extra work. And my workplace is too conservative to pressure them effectively. Worse, we don't actually get enough data to run analysis on because we only see a small subset of all complaints. So in reality, I repeat to my management what the frontline staff tells me about problems and it gets left there. I've also ended up in charge of creating more BS reporting requirements for others in my workplace at my boss's behest. The highlight of my workday is my bowel movement because it's an escape from an open plan office. This message was typed from my porcelain throne. I'm grateful that for the most part, my job doesn't actively harm anyone. It's low pressure and the people aren't reprehensible. I'm planning to stay long enough that I can get some training on offer and that it won't look too short on my CV. And that one's really interesting to me, David, because it, it covers some of the concepts we're going to talk about. One, how uh, the privatization of certain traditionally government roles doesn't necessarily lead to efficiency. In some cases, it actually makes things a lot worse and actually creates even more bureaucracy. In this case, you have uh, someone who's effectively a bureaucrat who has no power to do the job that they're tasked with doing. Uh, the other idea that I think is important here is how this person chooses to stay at this job because of the way it will impact their their resume, their ability to get a job in the future. 
And that's kind of a, you know, it's an interesting time we live in where we spend our time doing bullshit jobs so that we can get another bullshit job and keep putting these bullshit jobs on our resume for this like purpose of climbing this ladder that we just assume is natural. And, and that's one thing I want to question here is why this even exists in the first place, this concept of always having to climb the ladder. Uh, granted, it's kind of uh, required if you want to get by in life, but something we don't think about enough. Oh, here's, a, here's another one, David. Um, this person works for a company that helps phone books get on the internet. <laughs> this person writes that their clients, these phone book companies, Quote, we make them an app or website to search their data, basically a clunkier and less complete alternative to Google Maps that only works in one city. I could see their traffic numbers and most of them saw very little use. Um, they go on to write how basically all they do is they take their phone books and they input it into an Excel format. And that allows them to get it uploaded onto the internet. And because a lot of these formats are all the same, this person just automated the whole process with Python, a little computer programming and uh, by the time they left the company, they were just doing about a couple hours a week of actual work, in addition to some customer support and phone calls and stuff like that. And, and that's another concept we're going to be talking about is how there's really two concepts. One, the creation of bullshit jobs. So these are the jobs themselves don't need to exist by the employee's own admission. Whole industries don't need to exist. But for jobs that are actually important, by, by the employee's own admission, something like a teacher who's doing really good work, you have the bullshitization of those jobs. For instance, like school teachers are now doing more and more administrative tasks. Or in this case, this person is doing perhaps some meaningful work, but then a lot of time is taken up doing, doing bullshit tasks. And as David Graeber writes in his book, it's estimated that some 37% of all employees think that the jobs they do are, are worthless. And that if you could cut out all the bullshit in our economy, all of us could work less than 15 hours a week. And, and this person that writes in literally says, I probably only spend 10 to 20 hours a week actually doing work at this company. So at least for this person, that kind of matches up with the uh, numbers. And sometimes these larger systemic components of how our economy works, things that we take very fundamentally for granted, like competition, and the fact that it's supposed to be a naturally good thing, can turn around and bite us in the ass, turning what should be good work into bullshit jobs. So somebody else wrote us and told us about their work in the AI machine learning industry, and they're doing something that they said is ostensibly, undoubtedly a public good. This is a product they're making. It's probably some sort of health-related thing that digs into information and is making the world a better place using this machine learning. But here's the thing. There's probably 20 or 30 other companies that are doing the exact same thing that this person's company is also doing. And the way machine learning works is that most of the neural networks that are being used to train these final black box algorithms that get whatever information that is necessary from the data we input are more or less the same. They're standard packages that are tweaked a little bit. And the big difference between the different products is what data you use to train them and how you classify that data. But the product itself, the, the machine learning that generates the final useful good that we're all looking forward to, is something that is more or less at this point standardized. And I don't want to simplify this too much. I know the computer science engineers out there are yelling at me. But for the fact of the matter is, this is much more similar than we might find with you know different operating systems or different ways of writing software, whatever. That aside. So the big difference is data, what data you use, how much data you have, and how you classify it. 
And so all these companies are competing against each other, trying to make the same product. And in that process, keeping all this data away from each other, locking it off, making it private, making it their own data and not sharing anything. And when they're all supposed to be working on this public good, that means they're all using slightly less and worse data because of it, rather than if they could combine this data or use it as publicly available information and create a better product because of it. So this process of competition that's supposed to give us better results, and that's, that's one of the fundamental ways that our economy is working, in theory, is actually making all of us have worse products in this important public good, whatever it is, because everyone is keeping their data hidden and secret and therefore not sharing it with these greater neural networks and machine learning processes. Mm. This is turning what should be, once again, a good for humanity, and that's one of the phrases that they used, and turns it into something that is much worse, is crippled in its capabilities, and in this person's view, because of that, a bullshit job. I wonder, too, because this data is like locked up, I wonder how much of promoting these artificial intelligent companies comes down to just clever marketing. Well, and of course, marketing itself is a big, big bullshit job industry uh, as somebody who profits heavily off of that. Right, because the idea is if you can't open up your data to scrutinization and allow people to really evaluate what it's doing, a shortcut to showing how this service is valuable to companies is just pay marketers and PR people to make it look good. It also reminds me, obviously, of episode 33, All Rights Reserved, about how the locking up of data, sectioning it off, actually harms innovation like you're talking about. But also, like episode 29, War Machine, where we talk about how artificial intelligence and these black box algorithms are being used for offensive weaponry and, of course, like facial tracking, as we've talked about in other episodes. And without having access to that data, there's really no way to tell if it's even doing its job. But because it's locked up, these companies, these governments can get away just using it, even with the errors, because there's no one to, to counter that. There's no way to say, look, the, the algorithms are racist or, or whatever, because we can't look at them. But meanwhile, the empirical evidence might show otherwise. Okay, Daniel, we're sort of rambling a little bit here because we have so many examples and there's a lot that we're emitting and we'll get to some more in a moment. But you know, we keep using this phrase, bullshit job. And, and that is something that I think a lot of us can intrinsically feel. But maybe it would be better off if we could define that. And that is a lot of what David Graeber did in this book, Bullshit Jobs. So let's, let's talk about what is a bullshit job. Well, first and foremost, the definition of a bullshit job can't come necessarily from the outside, from you or me, David, because ultimately we're talking about subjective values here, right? I mean, some people might think that an advertiser is useful, others might not. If you're trying to proceed with some kind of estate dispersion. You might actually really value the uh, corporate lawyer who's helping you with that. And so the best way to evaluate whether or not a job is bullshit is from the employee's perspective. Like Who is better to tell you that a job is worthless than the person who is actually doing that? And if you get a whole group of people who are saying that about a whole uh, host of similar jobs, you might be able to infer from that that the whole industry might be bullshit, right? And so that's really what this is based on. And it's why we, we want to provide a lot of examples of these types of jobs and how people define them as bullshit. But that's, that's step number one. That's criteria number one, that you are an employee and you look at what you're doing, you realize that it's pointless. And you have to pretend a lot of times that what you're doing is meaningful, because if not, you might be fired or you might be judged by your coworkers or broader society. But ultimately, it comes down to the employee doing that job. 
And to help conceptualize this, Graeber lays out five broad categories of bullshit jobs that we might put these various things into. So without further ado, here are the five categories of bullshit jobs according to David Graeber. And remember, these are people who are self-defining their work as bullshit, and that's important. So number one are what he calls flunkies. And these are people whose whole purpose, more or less, is to make somebody feel more important. This could be the assistant or somebody who sits at a desk just to make things look more official, like this person is so important that they have people waiting on them. And it's an important common business tactic, but ultimately means someone is sitting around and is basically nothing more than a, you know, the same as a very fancy diploma or framed picture with the president on their desk to let other people know that this person has power over others. And it's not to say that all receptionists are these flunkies. In fact, a lot of receptionists, Absolutely not. Yeah, a lot of receptionists or, you know, assistants end up doing a lot of the work for their bosses. Yes. Which kind of makes their bosses obsolete. But there's also a lot of uh, a lot of people who sit at desks who are really just there to, you know, add decor to the office or make something seem a little bit more official. And my favorite example from the book, David, comes from the world of finance, actually. And it comes from a guy who describes his job as a cold collar for stockbrokers. His whole job, right, is you have all these stockbrokers in Wall Street making these trades and they all want to be important. They all want to seem like the big dog, right? So they hire these people at, you know, dollars an hour and they give them a list of all their clients or people they want to call in. And they have the their assistant, this cold caller, call everybody. And the whole purpose of this job is to call a client and say, um, the broker's too busy to speak to you, but he wanted me to reach out to you to see if you're interested in this deal he's working on or whatever. And the idea is that if the broker is too busy to call a client, he must be pretty important, right? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the the broker's just sitting there. In addition, this also makes him look better to his supervisor. So he's hoping to get promoted from the, the pit, from the trading floor to maybe a corner office upstairs. But it's completely pointless other than that. I know people that, that do stuff like this now where they're, they've got some sort of startup or something and they're trying to feel more important. So they'll pay somebody, uh, oftentimes uh, somebody who's working remote from India or somewhere, pay them a small fee to act as their assistant. They'll ask their assistant, hey, call this person. The assistant will call this person, say, hey, uh, Ryan or whoever wants to speak with you, could, could I put you on hold for one second? The person says, okay. They put him on hold. They transfer back to the person who just asked them to call them and then they connect them and the actual phone call occurs. So everyone just got five or 10 minutes of their time wasted for the charade of looking like this this startup person is so important that they already have a secretary and that makes them so successful. What's the trope on, on TV? Like my people will call your people, that type yeah, of thing. Where somebody answers the phone and they're like, one minute. Yes, uh, Mr. Mr. Torsivia is busy. Just one second. And then they change their voice and they're like, <clears throat> yes, hello, Mr. Torsivia here. It's the same same thing, except you're actually paying somebody a salary to do that job. But okay, moving on. The second category of bullshit jobs is something that David Graeber calls goons. And goon carries like a, a visceral, like physical idea. Like you think about it, someone like with a baseball bat, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the idea, right? Like if you're a criminal organization in one city and you're competing with another one, you need all these goons to protect you from the other guy's goons. And so what he's saying is that companies do the same thing. Yeah, and the very first thing that comes to my mind, and actually the word goons is often used for this, is lawyers attacking other teams of lawyers on behalf of some company lawsuit that has little to nothing to do with anything that actually occurs in the real world, 
but is just some sort of machinations between the business deals of, of all this stuff. And and people, what do they call those lawyers? They're my hired corporate goon lawyers. That's a phrase that people say uh, using this this word that is exactly defining this stuff. But it's, it's not just lawyers. It's uh, a lot of like lobbyists um, coming out and trying to speak on behalf of an industry to politicians or to other other people. I actually know a small business owner, David, uh, who a few years back was sued. He, he got a, a lawsuit. I don't know how it works in the mail or whatever, you know, saying, hey, you've been served <laughs> with like a number like, hey, but if you want to stop this, if you want to settle, give us a call. And basically what it turned out to be is that there's attorneys that are employed by various companies who go around looking for small businesses to sue with the idea being that a lot of small business owners have insurance, business insurance. And what their business insurance contracts stipulate is in the event of lawsuit, if it's possible to settle, they have to settle. And of course, this is expensive for the small business owner, but less expensive than a drawn out court case in which the uh, business insurer has to pay for. And well, this particular business owner that I knew didn't have insurance. So he called him up and said, look, I don't care if you sue me. I don't have any money. And he said, well, give us the name of your, your insurer. We'll call them. And he said, I don't have business insurance. And they, oh, you don't? And so they hung up and they, they dropped the lawsuit. They weren't interested in suing him for any particular reason other than if he had insurance, they could force the insurer to make him settle. It's just like a really legal insurance scam. Exactly. What, what a great corporate law system we have in this country. Anyway, I think we get the idea. The third category is what he calls duct tapers. And these are people who fix things that should have never been broken in the first place. And I do this a lot in some parts of my job. But but say you have a, uh, a device that was built, but it was built sort of cutting corners, and then they have to hire engineers to come in and, and fix that problem. Or, or a car has a problem, it's built poorly, and now all this stuff is going to mechanics to replace things because it's it's uh, there's a recall or something. These people are duct tapers who exist solely to fix the mistakes of others of these large companies who made those mistakes in the first place because they're just trying to make things as cheap and shitty as possible. And you can see how these things can proliferate and, and like cascade upon one another. If a company hires a team of goons just for the sake of competing with another company with goons, but then those goons themselves, because they're not there to do a particular task well, but just like serve in this like superfluous role, they might make mistakes that the company then has to hire somebody else to go behind them and clean up their mess. The fourth category are box stickers. And this is maybe one that we can most relate to because even if it's not our own job, we definitely experience these people in our day-to-day existence because society's built so much around bureaucracy. And these are people who more or less exist to say things are being done, to check those boxes on a piece of paper to pass the form on, but are actually themselves not really doing anything except being just a cog in this larger machine of endless paper trails and processes that for some reason we've built up ostensibly to streamline our interactions with each other, but really just make it Byzantine and impossible to figure anything out. Yeah, very often also box stickers exist to prove that something is being done, even though in the real world it's not being done at all. And there's a ton of examples of this, so I'll wait for that to uh, elaborate. Right. And so the last category are task masters. And these are probably the most reviled section of the bullshit jobs uh, categories here. These are your middle management, your bosses, 
that you know are doing basically nothing except just ordering people around to abuse their power, but aren't actually getting any work done or helping the work that is being done. They just exist because there's this hierarchical structure that we assume is the way that things have to be, and somebody gets plugged into that, and then that's they abuse that power, I guess. Right. Well, if there's four other categories of bullshit jobs, clearly there's someone telling those people what to do, right? And that's often the taskmasters. And there's two basic categories of these. There are those taskmasters who are creating new jobs or creating tasks for people to do that are ultimately just bullshit. Um, And then there are those that simply distribute bullshit tasks. So you might think of the difference being like the head administrator at a university who's given 10 uh, staff members that need jobs so that administrator has to come up with something for them to do versus a middle manager at a large bureaucratic corporation whose own supervisor and the supervisor above them hands down all these tasks and then he just you know maybe forwards an email to his staff letting them know what the task is and then and then there's like a sixth minor category that he describes and that's the flat catcher and that's basically someone who just exists to be the buffer between maybe a supervisor and some other underlings, right? The idea being that maybe there's some conflict or drama and rather than put two parties directly in the same room to deal with that conflict, you just hire people to kind of be the go-between and kind of diffuse some of that drama. Which is kind of what one of those earlier examples was doing. The ombudsman is a whole industry that exists to act as an in-between for the customer who's been wronged and the company that did the wronging and then, unfortunately, they're, they're supposed to figure out a problem and a solution. But as this person wrote us to tell that, sorry, most of the time the company doesn't care and the problem goes unfixed. Yeah. OK, David, before we go into like some other broader concepts and maybe why these jobs exist and, and what has changed over time, I went ahead and like summarized a majority of the examples from David Graeber's book. And, and there's a lot of examples, but I think it's important because before I read his book, I couldn't have come up with any good examples because, I mean, I just haven't worked that many jobs where I could imagine how bullshit jobs could exist in, in industries that I would normally consider to be very useful, you know, logistics and technology and creative industries and, and you know, attorneys even. Like these are industries that I wouldn't have thought bullshit proliferated. But the fact of the matter is, most bullshit jobs occur in the white collar sector. And that makes sense, right? If you're a mechanic, even though you might not be paid very well and you might hate your job, you probably recognize that it's useful. You wouldn't consider it bullshit necessarily if you are actually fixing someone's car. That's, that's pretty valuable. If you drive a bus, if you clean a building, if you salt the roads, if, these are the types of jobs that serve a clear function, at least in terms of our infrastructure and civilization. But when it comes to the white collar sector, these informational jobs, that's when we see a different story. So let's look at some examples. So, I mean, the book is just chock full of examples. There's a huge portion of what the actual text is. It's, it's a great book. Please, everyone, go buy it. But so just to summarize a couple of these. So the first example in this book, and one that we all sort of know about, is uh, the excess and ridiculous amounts of bureaucracy that exist in the military, and especially where this government organization and, and the large amount of rules and regulations go with that, but up against private industry and the ways that private industry can take advantage of these regulations and systems. So he talks about this person who is a contractor that does something that he calls IT logistics for the German military. And so what this contractor is doing, he's working for this contracting company that works with another contractor and, and their contracting company. 
And so, uh, say I'm a, I'm a German soldier and I want to move my computer. You know, that's that seems pretty easy, right, Daniel? I just pick it up right. and I'd move it to the desk next to mine. But because of all these inefficiencies and the systems and the bureaucracy stuff going on, it's not that simple. First, you've got to file these forms, these giant packets of stuff, and these all this stuff is so difficult to fill out that the soldier can't do it. So he's got to pass it off to his contractor. And so this example contractor is now filing 15 different pages of paperwork, driving between these bases for hours, quite literally five to ten hours to finish one task to file these different pieces of paperwork ultimately so that this computer in our example and this is a real example could be moved five meters down the hall to a different office right and his whole purpose in this process the thing that he's being paid for is just you know filing papers moving all the stuff around when somebody in a reasonable and same world could just pick this computer up move it down the office put it down and that would be it and I know you mentioned like with government bureaucracy and we see the confluence of that with private industry, we have these problems. But this is really an example of privatization where exactly. if, the, if the military was just one entity, we can imagine a lieutenant just walking down the hallway and say, hey, move your computer. Boom, done. But because in, in the German military's case, in the US as well, we see similar things. Everything has been outsourced. This contractor was actually the subcontractor of another contractor uh, who was the subcontractor of another contractor. So you have what used to be one single entity. Well, now the, the logistics have been outsourced and that logistics company needs to outsource IT and, and that IT company needs to outsource HR. And, and so all these layers of bureaucracy is created uh, essentially to siphon off the, the, <laughs> the budget of the military. And so what, what would have started originally as somebody pitching like, oh, we can save money here in the military by saying, you know, we don't need to hire IT people to take care of our computers. We'll hire a company to do that for us instead of having to train the soldiers, whatever. It's a great idea on paper. But now you have contractor, subcontractor, subcontractor, subcontractor who has to have all these different things, file all these papers so that everyone in this huge chain of sucking up money from the German state knows exactly what share they're getting and how it's all divided. And, and the soldiers can't touch this computer that they're the ones going to be using and move it to somewhere else because then the logistics company would lose track of that. And, and you created an entire, not even just one bullshit job, Daniel, but an entire bullshit industry. Right. And we'll talk about kind of how that fits into to the overall framework of our new economic paradigm. Moving on to another example is a Spanish civil servant who didn't show up to work for six years before anyone noticed. Another one is Rachel, who got a degree in physics and then worked as an insurance catastrophe risk analyst, where her job mostly consisted of forwarding emails, copying numbers in Excel, and creating visual mind maps in which her bosses told her to color code things that were nice-to-haves, must-haves, and would-like-to-haves in the future. Um, she quit shortly after that one. <laughs> and then, David, there were many examples from the book of advertisers who considered their jobs to be bullshit. One digital artist is being paid over 100,000 British pounds per year, uh, who spends his whole life correcting the blemishes on celebrity faces for commercials. He started out in the, in the industry doing you know, visual effect type stuff, like explosions for films and stuff, but now mostly does these commercials and, and really feels like it's a waste of time. And then you, you have digital advertisers who meticulously craft highly produced and expensive movie-like website banner ads for big companies like car companies, with the knowledge that their ad agencies fudge the numbers on how many website users actually ever click or even look at these ads, which is practically zero. So these are 
these are digital artists who went into this business thinking they would be making films, but ended up getting, getting paid by something like Toyota to make this elaborate commercial that just goes into a banner ad on a website. Yeah. I've been uh, been part of those. Yeah. And what's fr- and what's frustrating to this particular person is they write in and saying, "Look, my company has all the data, and it's clear that no one looks at these ads. But we would lose business, so we fudge the numbers, and then our marketing and PR team pitch these to these these big companies as like uh, really effective." I mean, the advertising one really strikes close to home for me, Daniel, because a lot of my work is advertising based. And I mean, I've been on projects that have cost six figures easily, which is small in a lot of the advertising world to make a corporate video that ultimately gets, you know, three or four thousand views on YouTube. And and all the like labor hours involved that, that we put into working to make this product um, and money aside, you know, that is such a colossal waste of everything to create this product that ultimately no one sees. But Companies still keep making them and sponsoring them because somebody out there has the bullshit job of selling this fact that, oh, yeah, it's great for your brand. It's going to make you know brand recognition. You got to have this content. You just have to. Otherwise, people are going to forget you exist. It's, it's kind of like a podcast too, right? Where a lot of companies today say, well, we can't, you know, we don't have an effective marketing platform if we don't have a podcast. And so they create like a company mm-hmm. podcast that goes onto their website that no one ever, ever watches. It's like 15 yeah, minutes long. It has like five episodes and then they never make a six one. Right. Yeah. You just got to hop on whatever, whatever latest bandwagon you can in order to suck some money out of this giant uh, economic system. But <laughs> continuing on with examples, one analyst at a travel company spends his whole day receiving plane schedules by email and then puts them into Excel by hand. There's another one at a different company that receives emails of forms submitted by other employees that have IT needs. And then they copy them onto a different form. And this is a method of bullshit jobs that that we've talked about called duct taping. Betsy is a full-time worker at an elderly community and spends her days having residents fill out forms related to their activity preferences, which then go into file cabinets never to be read or acted on. And that's a perfect example of a box ticker. Someone who, uh, you know, on paper is asking residents what their uh, activity preferences are just for the sake so that the company can say, we ask all our residents this, but then ultimately never actually do anything because it's much easier to quantify and datafy you know, boxes on a piece of paper than it is to something like, say, quality time that a resident actually experiences or happiness or you know, social meaning or something like that. But to be fair, a lot of box ticking jobs are spent making sure companies are complying with certain rules. The U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act requires companies to do due diligence, ensuring they don't do business with corrupt and legal entities overseas. So this ultimately means that companies are hiring people at minimum wage who work from home just to type company names into Google and then write these very complex, detailed reports about how no corruption was found. Clarence is a contractor for a global securities firm working as a museum guard who guards an empty room in a wing of a museum no one visits and isn't allowed to read or do anything while on the clock. So he ends up sitting in a chair for seven hours a day doing nothing. I think for me, this was the quintessential example of the bullshit job. There's a lot of them you could argue maybe about some sort of value being done. But for poor Clarence, he's guarding an empty room. And he's not allowed to spend his time doing anything productive, even though no one is trying to break into this empty room. And, and why is he supposed to do that? Like, why, guarding the room aside, like, why isn't he allowed to at least enjoy his time there? Because 
uh, or some boss decides that we can't have you slacking on the job, even though that job is ultimately pointless. It's just such a great example of, of how ridiculous the system is and the small tyrannies that can happen in these relationships between stuff because of the way that we interact and have created culturally our idea of the boss and the employee. But moving on. Well, you raise a good question, David. Like, why does his job exist? <laughs> I guess at least for Clarence, he can put on his CV, you know, or resume something like manager of asset security for a global international uh, firm and, and like maybe like dress it up so it looks nice for his next employer. But speaking about how oppressive some of these work environments are, I think the absolute worst example uh, that I found in this book comes from Nigel, who worked for a company that was hired by corporations to scan company loyalty applications. You know what these are. You go to a retail store, they ask if you want to get 10% off by signing up for their rewards program. You don't really want to, but you do it anyway because you want the 10% off, but you really just fill the form with bogus phone numbers and addresses so they don't actually contact you. At least that's what I do. So these are the forms that Nigel works with. And the company that employs him has a software that automatically scans these forms. But there's like a very small chance that this software will make errors. So to compensate for that, this company promises clients you know, those retail stores, that they will triple check every form to make sure that it's accurate. So every day, Nigel got bussed in along with other temp workers so that for eight hours, they could stare at these forms every day and try to spot errors, all the while being surveilled, not allowed to talk to each other, and basically treated like garbage. Here, and here's a relevant quote from Bob Black's essay on the abolition of work. Quote, the official line is that we all have rights and live in a democracy. Other unfortunates who aren't free, like we are, have to live in police states. These victims obey orders or else, no matter how arbitrary. The authorities keep them under regular surveillance. State bureaucrats control even the smaller details of everyday life. The officials who push them around are answerable only to higher-ups, public or private. Either way, dissent and disobedience are punished. Informers report regularly to the authorities. All this is supposed to be a very bad thing. And so it is, although it is nothing but a description of the modern workplace. <laughs> I think Nigel's job and Clarence's uh, global security job really highlight the oppressive nature of so many of these bullshit jobs. And sometimes bullshit jobs don't just impact an individual, making them feel like they're not doing anything useful with their time but could have effects where they're wasting people who should be doing something better and forwarding society and helping all of us with what is basically meaningless task work. One of the examples is a man named Ramadan who graduated from a top-notch engineering university and hoped to go to work researching and designing new technology, something that we would all love to see happen. But instead, he was hired as a control and HVAC engineer, and his entire day consists of doing basic efficiency checks on the company's air conditioning unit and then just taking that, filing it away with other paperwork, and spending the rest of his time watching movies. It's a huge waste of talent, man hours, and the education that, that we've put into this person. And that is one of the themes that runs through these bullshit jobs is, what are we doing with all this, this time and energy? We're just churning it in the system that exists for, well, most of us, we have no idea why it's existing or why this is happening in the first place. All we know is that it's a waste. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have to go through many more of these examples, but these bullshit jobs proliferate even, even at roles we would consider to have tons of responsibility. 
One example comes from Charles, who was hired as an associate producer for a big video game company in Los Angeles. He was supposed to act as the bridge between designers and programs, but there just wasn't any work. So eventually he was asked by his boss to draft instructions for programmers to implement sound designs. But after he did that, he discovered there was already a team in place hired just for that purpose and that by doing their work, his boss had made a mistake. And so Charles was fired to save face for his boss. And there are tons of other examples of people at these high roles that we would consider to be of massive responsibility that end up doing nothing, like film and TV executives, for example, who wrote in to say that, you know, really they're just hired by financial funds and conglomerate corporations who then employ these executives who don't know anything about film and TV, who listen to the same TV idea idea pitches from the same writers for months, having no idea if it will succeed or fail because they know nothing about it. And they're afraid to take any responsibility in approving or rejecting ideas. And a lot of this speaks to like the influx of managers in the economy, right, David? Like middle management, everyone hates a middle manager, but Mm -hmm. there's a reason. And that's because ultimately we don't really need to be managed if we're doing work that, that has a purpose, right? If you're just highlighting forms for some bullshit uh, company loyalty program, you might need a manager because you don't want to do that. It's pointless. You want to talk to your colleague and there's no reason to do it. So you need a boss to say, hey, do this or else we're going to fire you and then you won't be able to pay your rent. But when it comes to things that, that do serve a purpose, we never really need a manager, do we? No, because you already clearly know what you want to do. And and yeah, you know, maybe a manager can help break up the work and stuff, but there's no reason that you can't talk to your teammates and do that as well. We sort of have decided that we can't divide work or figure out how to tackle problems without somebody being the leader in that process. But that's absolutely not true. And there's tons of examples of places that function ultimately without somebody in the designated leader role and, and function well. Well, and clear examples of that were discussed in our pirate show, Golden Age. David, I used to work at Blimpy, a sub shop when I was uh, young. <laughs> and what I noticed is usually there was no more than three of us working at a time. And one of us would be more senior to the other. And we kind of deferred to that person. And there were days where we'd come in, we'd open the shop. The senior employee would call our supplier of food and place an order. And as part of opening the shop, we would go out back and collect all the groceries that were delivered by the the truck. And then we'd start baking the bread. We'd make the sandwiches when the, the people came in. But only at the end of the day did the manager show up to raid the cash register and go home while we mopped the floors and closed up. And it, and it really highlights like what exactly is the owner's role in that? I mean, go to any Waffle House at two o'clock in the morning. There's no boss there. People know how to run things. But we've introduced these managers because ultimately what their purpose is, at least in this case, is to siphon up that money and take it somewhere else. Okay. So uh, once again, Daniel, I think we're rambling a little bit through through these examples and trying to illustrate this stuff. And in this book, there's so much stuff in here. There's so many concepts about what it means to be working in the modern day, especially here in the United States with our very unique warped sense of work and how we've turned this, unfortunately, into this giant identity of who we are. And of course, when you're working a bullshit job, if you think your job is bullshit, and as an American, you're told that you are what you do, uh, if it's not, you know, you are what you eat, then your, your whole sense of self is warped in that process. And we run into that problem, like we started with the show, that your fifth uh, section on the Torsivia hierarchy of needs and loneliness is not being met. And because of that, everything else is compromised. 
So let's just talk through a couple of these main concepts. There's so many of them in this book. The book is really worth reading. But let's uh, let's talk about this, Daniel. Like, Just share with me some of the main concepts you pulled away from this tech of the workplace, of who we are, and bullshit jobs. I mean, like you said, there's so many concepts, but I think what becomes apparent to anyone who's been in this situation is that having a bullshit job is an assault on one's soul, really. And if you think about what it means to be a human being, like, yes, socializing is part of that and having meaning and all this, but on a fundamental level, there's something really satisfying and important about being able to have an impact on the world. I mean, as studies show, even like uh, one of the earliest signs of development in a baby is when they connect the idea that when they move their hands and their hands touch something and that something moves and that realization that that change that occurred in the world came from them is something that is extremely pleasurable. It brings a whole bunch of satisfaction and could be said to be the basis for what it means to be a self. And that if you restrict that from a baby, if, if once the baby has discovered that ability and you take that away, you have the emotions of rage that begin to manifest. But that quickly gets replaced by something else. And then that's a withdrawing away. When someone loses the ability to impact the world, what ends up happening is an erosion of self, this kind of withdrawing in an inability to engage with the world and, and, and to seclude from other people. And I mean, we talked about last week, again, in loneliness, about the hikikomori, right? Japanese youth who have no function in this world. And so they end up just locking themselves in their rooms for decades. And I think that's really intimately connected with this bullshitization of our economy, where if ultimately what you're doing doesn't matter and you're not having an impact on anything, you know, who, who are you? What is, the, what is the purpose for your existence? Where, who, where do you belong? And that's uh, deeply troubling. To, to experience that. Well, we've talked about a little bit of this on the show before. I mean, so much it ties into the alienation and loneliness we talked about last week, but also just this larger conception that our work defines us. And uh, that's sort of, I think, just something that emerged because we're so busy, we don't have time for the things we're actually passionate about and love and, and would like to have the resources to engage in because we're too busy trying to survive with these jobs that are unfortunately often bullshit jobs. And there are lots of jobs that aren't bullshit jobs that are important, and but are shit jobs. And this is one of the points Graber makes in his book. And that's just because a job sucks and because it doesn't pay us fairly, whatever, does not make it a bullshit job. There are lots of jobs that are shit jobs that shouldn't be, uh, or we should at least reward them and pay them for the the difficulty that they pose. This is a lot of manual labor. This is a lot of things like teachers. I mean, you have to love teaching uh, it, to do it. I don't want to call it a shit job, but it really can be. It's really tough work, and we should be compensating it in that way. And paradoxically, a lot of these bullshit jobs, especially things like middle management and stuff, are well-paying. You know, I, I have a, a vast majority of my work is bullshit jobs. And I mean, I'm self-employed. So for listeners of the show, uh, I, I mention my work uh, sometimes, but I, I guess I really have never gone in depth about it. But I, uh, I work in the film industry. I am a colorist, which is somebody that comes in and makes a video look really great. I fix all the colors and balance it. It's kind of like mastering for audio, but I do it for video. And I work on all sorts of things. I do music videos. I do movies. I do TV shows. I do a lot of advertisements. And if I disappeared today and if my entire job disappeared, the world would not really change all that much. I mean, you would maybe have slightly worse looking 
products on TV and YouTube and stuff, but nothing of consequence will be lost. And I don't want to disparage art in this same way. Um, I think there's a lot of value to art that's being created. Those are my favorite projects when I can have something creative. And incidentally, those are also always the worst paying projects that I engage in. And so to, to reinforce this idea that bullshit jobs pay well, when I'm doing my most bullshit work, which is advertising, which is stuff that oftentimes is never seen or is not effective if it is seen, but has huge amounts of money spent on it. I charge a, a gigantic, disgusting amount of money to these people. And that pays for all the time that I put into these passion projects for people who actually want to create something that they care about. And that's sort of how I balance out the bullshit elements of my work. But a lot of us don't have that sort of luxury because their bullshit jobs are either too time consuming or they don't pay enough that they can can make this work-life balance. But even if, if our job isn't wholly bullshit, these sort of bullshit parts end up working their way into it. So this is something I, I think I, I see a lot of similarities to the hikikomori last week where, yeah, there's a, a large amount of people who are complete hikikomori. Right. But there are 70% of people in this in this age group who say either I, I strongly feel like I'm I'm who who identify sympathetic to or at least partially hikikomori. I just can't bring myself to the final bit where I I cut myself off from everything. In the same sense, you know, maybe not all of us would define all our work as bullshit jobs, either because of the cognitive dissonance or because we are doing some useful things in some parts of our day. But there's so much other bullshit we have to engage in just to do what is our stated task at work, the thing that we actually chose this job for if we were lucky enough to be able to choose a job. Well, And there's data to back this up too, David. According to the U.S. 2016-2017 State of Enterprise Work Report, office workers spent just 39% of their time on actual work duties in 2016, which was down from 46% in 2015 due to the rise of other tasks like administrative ones, emails, and pointless meetings like you mentioned. And another thing that really stands out to me about this, David, is how these trends are becoming ingrained and they start, they're, they're becoming earlier and earlier on the timeline that is our lives. And so we see this bullshitization of schoolwork happening in both primary schools and universities. It's well known, for instance, that the institution of public education in the West arose largely out of the need for like industrial employers to have access to a growing pool of labor that was trained in following orders, working in tedious repetition, uh, that they could show up on time. I mean, you know, about the time public education sprouted out, we had really the introduction of the time clock, which was important for industrial factory work, but uh, wasn't really a significant part of people's lives, right? I mean, you got up and you did what tasks you had to, had to do, but there wasn't a rigid timetable for everything. And so that's one of the reasons public education was created, to indoctrinate people into a, a very scheduled on-the-clock way of living. Mm -hmm. and, and rest assured, listeners, we will absolutely get into this at great depth at some point. Right. But now we're seeing something similarly happening in our higher institutions of learning, which were once places exclusively for independent thought, experimentation, pure research and exploration. But today, universities are filled with students working university jobs that are essentially pointless in no small part due to this explosive growth of student loan debt, because now we're seeing that the federal government encourages students who take on debt to also enroll in some sort of work program while in college. And ostensibly, it's to 
you know, relate the work to their coursework and prepare them for, you know, what their major is preparing them for. But in reality, what it means is that many students end up doing pointless things like scanning IDs, pretending to monitor empty rooms, sitting at front desks of buildings and dorms for no reason, even bus driving, which isn't a bullshit job. It's a really important job. But this was something that was super common at my university. I went to the University of Georgia and almost all of the buses were driven by undergraduates. And it was actually considered one of the best jobs a student could get on campus. It paid something like over $15 an hour. And like I said, that's not a pointless job, but for a college setting, it's certainly one that's, that lends itself to this regimentation, to the supervision and management. Well, also, I mean, they're supposed to be in this environment where they're free to explore and learn things, exactly. but because of the financial realities we have, we're resigning them to spend huge amounts of their day driving just to be able to engage in this university where they're supposed to be exploring stuff, but can't because they're too busy driving. And we, we, we get in this vicious loop cycle. And I, I think that's one of the, the things that Graeber doesn't quite go into enough in his book. But the fact that some of these these jobs, and I guess he says that we shouldn't try and point to a job and say that that's bullshit, that people have to define it. But the fact that somebody has to drive this bus instead of being able to explore and find the true purpose of knowledge in the, this university setting like they're supposed to. Well, maybe it's not a bullshit job, but it is bullshit. And I, I feel justified in saying that. And we can see how this definitely plays a role in the larger uh, a framework of our economy. Remember that, you know, going back to that example, you highlighted earlier in this episode, David, about that engineer who got a degree in engineering, but ended up doing some pointless air condition monitoring. Well, in the same way, forcing people who are in debt to have these types of regimented, pointless managerial jobs in college prepares them for the reality that after college, they're not going to be using their degrees in the way they thought they were. They're going to get an engineering degree, and then they're going to sit in an office and type into a report that the AC is working correctly. But if you can indoctrinate them into those habits and lifestyles prior to graduation, then it's a natural and seamless transition, right? And I think that's just one of the things that really stood out to me is how these ideas become ingrained and, and then it becomes an expectation. And then we have this world that we have today where so many of these broken systems just become normal and, and everyone thinks this is how it's always been, how it should be, and why bother trying to change it. Meanwhile, everyone's miserable. <clears throat> Meanwhile, everyone's miserable. Thanks for listening to Ashes Ashes. <laughs> but wait, there's more, David. <laughs> But uh, there's a lot of concepts here. Uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on, too, was the idea that our time belongs to someone else and that time can be sold. And in some ways, you know, way back when labor was first trying to define itself and define what labor rights were, we were just basically bought out wholesale and, and all your labor would belong to somebody. And then we fought for the eight-hour workdays. Uh, uh, a lot of anarchists fought and died for this sort of stuff, and it became a larger labor movement beyond that. May Day is coming up to celebrate some of these things. Uh, the concept of weekends was established where time would belong to yourself, but it sort of had a double-edged sword to this where, well, if that time belongs to you and you're free to do what you want with it, that means the other eight hours that I'm paying you for belong entirely to me. And that if you're not engaging in productive work that whole time, then you are essentially robbing me of the time that I'm paying you for. Mm -hmm. And we see this this idea all the time. You, if you've ever worked a retail job or something or or uh, service industry, you probably had a manager who said, you know, I'm not paying you to sit around and do this. You're stealing from me by by not working right now. This idea that just because 
you are on the clock means you have to be constantly working. When in most people's positions, there's not an infinite amount of work that needs to be done constantly. Like you have the work, you finish it. Now you wait around for more work to be done. I can't tell you how much time I spend sitting around waiting for files or things to render so I can do more work. But it's like this in lots of industries. Uh, and, and we're finding increasingly that the more autonomy you give your employees over how they spend their time, and, and oftentimes even the less amount of time you end up working them, the more productive they become. There's a, uh, some experiments going on right now with four-day work weeks, and they're finding that people in four days are doing more work than other people do in five, even though on paper they're working less hours. Those hours are spent more productive because people are overall happier and more empowered because they find that they have more time to pursue the things they actually care about and want to do outside of this industry in that spare time. And that makes them more committed to finishing the rest of their work in the time that they've allotted so that they can enjoy the rest of that and be free. But you know, the people that end up doing that are kind of the lucky ones because there's two things going on. One, working a bullshit job where you can also work on other things means that you can't have a manager who's always breathing down your neck and you know surveilling you and monitoring your computer, right? But the other part of that is that you also can't be drained. Going back to that spiritual, you know, soul-sucking nature of all this, how, you know, you you reduce someone to a meaningless cog and it saps your energy. It it can be hard to do things. And so even people who find themselves with these pointless jobs and have a computer in front of them and ostensibly could spend a few hours every day, you know, learning a language or learning how to program. I mean, I mean never mind the fact that it's kind of ridiculous that we consider it a blessing that someone can go on YouTube and learn something, but they don't have the opportunity to be a part of a physical community where people could actually teach them things and they could explore these with other human beings. But I mean, never mind. There you go with the C word. Yeah, community. But never, you know, so putting that aside, even people who have the quote unquote blessing of being able to search a computer oftentimes don't have the energy to do so. I mean, you're sitting at work. I mean, how many people are really motivated to learn a language in that situation? Graeber actually addresses this. I want to read something that he wrote that relates to why we might see this rise of social media that we've seen over the past several years. He writes, quote, the most common complaint among those trapped in offices doing nothing all day is just how difficult it is to repurpose the time for anything worthwhile. One might imagine that leaving millions of well-educated young men and women without any real work responsibilities, but with access to the internet, might spark some sort of renaissance. Nothing remotely along these lines has taken place. Instead, the situation has sparked an efflorescence of social media, basically of forms of electronic media that lend themselves to being produced and consumed while pretending to do something else. I am convinced this is the primary reason for the rise of social media, especially when one considers it in the light not just of the rise of bullshit jobs, but also of the increasing bullshitization of real jobs. What we are witnessing is the rise of those forms of popular culture that office workers can produce and consume during the scattered, furtive shards of time they have at their disposal in workplaces where, even when there's nothing for them to do, they still can't admit it openly. Yeah, so you have people end up giving new employees instructions like, oh, if you're ever not busy, you know, grab a clipboard, walk around. Uh, back when I was working on film sets, if you had nothing to do, you were supposed to grab a cable and just stand there with it so it looked like you were doing something and people were waiting on you uh, so that they didn't think, oh, what are you doing? You're not doing anything this moment. You must be non-essential. Let me fire you. Because like I said, we don't all have to work all the time. There are times where we have downtime with nothing to do. Right. And that's okay because some jobs happen in bursts. They're not constant streams of stuff. 
But uh, the way that we try to quantify and schedule everything and, and the way that bureaucracy tries to define those in the same process really encourages us to think about things in that that constant stream of work way because it's easier to schedule. It's easier for us to make schedules for others around that process. But there's a lot of work, especially IT work, where things are fine and then there's a crisis, you solve the crisis and then things are fine and you have nothing to do for a moment. Exactly. That's okay. There's all sorts of stuff, but but just like uh, our society is not compatible with people who are late risers and built for people who are, are early morning birds, society is also not compatible with jobs that happen in bursts and instead very much prefers things that are steady amounts of work over the course of a day, like an assembly line, because that is how, for the most part, these businesses are still trying to view us as, as cogs in a machine for this greater assembly of a final product. And that's really the case as the economy's gotten more specialized and we've grown up with more specific jobs and roles in all these processes. And uh, going back to university jobs, I actually had a university job, David. I was you know front desk at a gym. And I remember always looking over my shoulder because we always had to look busy. So if you you know, if you weren't talking to a client or sitting there, you had to walk around with a rag and pretend to clean machines and you weren't allowed to sit down and, and all these things. But, you know, what I want to definitely hit is this idea that it's not just the public sector, which is the common perception, right? Given our the rise of free market ideology around the world, that government is inefficient. Therefore, we need to replace it with private organizations to solve that problem. And as we saw empirically with that German IT guy example, that's not always the case, but there's also more data to back that up. So while yes, we do see tons of pointless bureaucracy in the public sector, no doubt, it happens just as much, if not more, in the private sector. Between 1985 and 2005, as tuition costs were skyrocketing, universities in the United States saw a 56% increase in student enrollment but only a 50% increase in actual teachers. However, there was a whopping 240% increase in staff and 85% increase in administrators. Now, that was across the board, but that rate of change that was occurring in the number of administrators was double at private schools than it was at public institutions. And, And one possible explanation is that, look, when you have teachers and administrators who are subject to public criticism, it's a lot harder for an administrator to just hire a whole bunch of staff to serve his or her whims. But if you're a private institution, as Graeber points out, all your supervisors are, are essentially trustees who are extremely rich, who are used to this bureaucratization of corporate uh, empires. And don't bat an eye when a private administrator hires all these flunkies, to use that word, to uh, do pointless jobs for them. But David, let's talk about some of the broad reasons, some of the underlying structures that are occurring in our economy that, that have led to this massive proliferation of bullshit jobs. This is, I think, really important to understand, because if we buy into the traditional theories of, well, capitalism as it exists is the most efficient process of allocating labor and capital and other resources And because of that, because it's so inefficient to pay somebody to guard an empty room, well, you know, the system isn't going to support it, so it shouldn't happen. But, I mean, as we we talked about with all these endless examples and of our own experiences in our lives, and I'm sure everyone listening can relate to this, these types of jobs exist all over the place, constantly. So why is this system that's supposed to say, you know, 
everything is is dependent upon efficiency. If this job isn't making money, or if it's not being, uh, if it's not a good allocation of resources, it shouldn't exist, and the market should naturally make it eliminate. But I mean, what was that that statistic? Thirty seven percent of people feel their jobs are entirely bullshit, right? Um, and many more of us feel at least huge parts of it are. So, well, and and then real quick, David, something we didn't touch on, but if thirty seven percent of jobs are bullshit, we have to remember that there's also going to be jobs to support those jobs, right? If you have a whole office building full of people doing these pointless jobs, well, you still need cleaners to clean their office space. You still need electricians to wire up their lights and you need IT people to connect their computers. So we could estimate that many more than just 37% of the population is engaged in bullshit, but just some of that's going to be indirectly to support all these (laughs) directly bullshit jobs. Right. I I mean... With this entire system that's supposed to be so efficient, but we all end up invariably miserable in our our various positions within it. You know, how how do we get here? And that, that's the question that we ask so much on this show. But uh, what things led to this process and why do these jobs still exist? Why are we wasting all this capital and all these labor hours on these useless positions? I think there's two broad concepts to think about. And that's number one, this need for jobs that we we have kind of imbued in the public consciousness and, and in our various political ideologies of the day, where we hold jobs themselves as this irrefutable good. And that if you create jobs, you know, you're doing a public service, you're you're progressing the economy. And we never stop to question if we actually needed those jobs in the first place. Because it's just assumed that if people are employed, all is good for whatever reason. And and then the second concept I think that plays a really important role in the proliferation of this bullshit is financialization. Just the the turning of our economy from like real meaningful physical tangible things to just shifting money around in in various ways and we'll get to that but what we saw is that after World War II we had this broad economic restructuring of economies generally that uh, have all aimed at full employment, whether that was the Soviet Union's policy of directly providing jobs for every single working class person, or the emergence of the capitalistic models that we saw in the West, which sought to use economic policy to encourage the private sector to employ everybody. With the caveat being that a small level of unemployment in a capitalistic framework is seen as positive because it gives additional power to the employer class over labor, but the need for employment and jobs has been internalized within our society. Again, the idea being that all jobs are good and that if the market produces a job, it must serve purpose. And so both sides of the political aisle, (laughs) this very narrow political aisle that we have here in the West broadly, they both really support jobs, whether it's the right-wing version of giving tax breaks to the so-called job creators or a more left-wing type approach, demanding jobs for union workers or whatever. And all this kind of creates a contradiction. You know, we discussed in episode 28, debt end, the moral contradiction of believing it's morally good to always pay your debts while simultaneously believing it morally evil to engage in usury or predatory lending. And in the same way, we've been caught in this trap of individually wanting our jobs to have meaning and protesting and complaining when they don't, yet on a societal scale, we simply demand jobs without really having any language to demand that those jobs actually matter, right? David, in, in episode 61, Owning Change, when, where we discuss philanthropy, you mentioned the hypocrisy of philanthropic organizations who vehemently opposed 
this Affordable Care Act provision that would have helped pay for universal health care in America, but because it would reduce the amount of donations that individuals would end up making to these philanthropic organizations, which, by the way, existed for the purpose of managing the problems caused by a lack of health coverage, uh, they protested. Mm-hmm. In, in the same way, Graeber highlights the absurdity of this statement uh, President Obama made uh, when he was supporting the maintenance of our status quo for-profit private health insurance industry during the early uh, debate days of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, here's what Obama said, quote, I don't think in ideological terms. I never have. Everybody who supports single-payer health care says, look at all this money we would be saving from insurance and paperwork. Well, that represents one million, two million, Three million jobs filled by people who are working at Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or Kaiser or other places. What are we going to do with them? Where are we employing them? This is so ridiculous uh, and on so many levels, Daniel. And it's, it's honestly, it's one of the largest arguments against switching the medical system to one that is a universal healthcare based type. And they say, well, what about the insurance people? Think of all the jobs you'll be cr- destroying. And I, I started to say creating because I'm so used to saying jobs creating. Right, right. We, ne- <laughs> we never say jobs destroying. But I mean, if we switch to universal health care, there'd be millions of people put out of work because their jobs aren't useful anymore because we don't need them. And I, I, I mean, the immediate reaction is, is one of the, the economic admission that if you aren't working then you're dying, that you have no nowhere to live, you were not going to be able to afford to feed yourself. And that is a larger problem in this economy. And I think sort of tacitly being admitted here that uh, the state itself is not going to be able to take care of these people and they're not going to be able to take care of themselves and the, the employment industry isn't going to be able to create enough jobs to push them into something like this. So uh, well, that whole system is broken. But it also means that we end up propping up this enormously inefficient, expensive, terrible way of administrating our health because it's creating these useless bullshit jobs that shouldn't exist in the first place. Like if the entire insurance industry disappeared and we could just go to the doctor and then walk home from it, nothing of value would be lost. But this is millions of people. This is billions of dollars that are being spent on this huge waste of money from everyone because at the top, some people are able to scoop the rich cream of cash off the very top of this system become hugely wealthy off that process and then turn around and use that wealth and power to make sure that the system continues to feed them. Meanwhile, people are dying. Meanwhile, medical bankruptcies are the leading cause of bankruptcy. Meanwhile, there are thousands, soon to be hundreds of thousands or millions of people who can't afford essential things like their insulin because they've lost their insurance, because they can't afford insurance, and because those products are unavailable to people financially speaking, without insurance. But instead of talking about this, instead of talking about the huge loss of life and quality of life that exists because of the insurance industry, we're saying, well, we can't imagine anything better because we might lose some jobs, jobs that shouldn't exist in the first place. And if you ever wanted to talk about the status quo and how we defend the status quo and how we lock ourselves into defending the status quo, this is such a great example. Yeah, yeah. And it's also just a great example of of the contradiction here where the fact that those jobs are going away is what makes universal healthcare affordable because we don't have to pay for what is a bullshit industry, this private healthcare and what what is essentially the cost of competition and marketing because we don't need competition among insurance. We can very easily make that much more affordable by just using a single payer. And I think what it really reveals is the true nature of our economy. And so this leads us to the second main point here, which is financialization, where 
what our economy is engaged in principally at this point, and we saw the rise of financialization primarily after the 1970s, is just pure moving money around. And Graeber has a good metaphor for this, and he calls it managerial feudalism to, to speak broadly of the economy. But I want you to put yourselves, David, in the shoes of a feudal lord back in medieval Europe or so. Um, done and done. Yeah, pretty easy, right? Well, where does your income come from? Where, where does your wealth come from, David? Uh, if, you, if you're a feudal lord and you have this big estate, right, clearly you're funding that estate with something. Yeah, I, I guess the local taxes I levy on people to live on this land or area that, that I occupy, and I don't want to say own because whatever land I'm occupying is owned by the king or the queen of my larger area, and I am occupying it on their behalf. Taxes is the simple answer, is that you have all these peasants who are growing food for themselves, right? Because that's how they're living. And then you, as the, as the Lord, saying, I'm going to take half of all your food. So now you have a bunch of food, David. Well, <laughs> what are you going to do with all that food? You need a way to protect it. So you're going to use that food, which we'll just call wealth at this point, to uh, accumulate soldiers, people who can guard your estate. But that's just going to be a small part of the pie. So now you need accountants. You need people to, to clean the baseboards of your estate. You need equestrians. You need uh, all these things. And, and again, it's not going to take up the whole pie. And because you have so much wealth, eventually people are going to start accumulating on your state. Now, you can do one of two things. You can drive them off with your soldiers, but then you might have a political crisis on your hands. So why not just give them some of that wealth and just give them some fancy title, give them some bullshit job, right? Throw some parties, throw some festivals. I'm done with this feudal party life. Right. And what we see in this example is that the whole institution of this feudal manner and the people associated with this have come about from the need to distribute goods, this loot that was essentially taken from the people who created it. And financialization is really the same thing. We can think of the, this industry as what is known as FIRE, but it stands for financial, insurance, and real estate. And these three go kind of hand in hand in this financialization process where you have huge landlords that own all the property and they extract wealth from the people who live in those properties or who work in those properties. Think of those as the peasants, and that's the initial wealth that's being scooped up, just like in those in that feudal uh, example. Now you have all this money that needs to be distributed somehow. So all these industries start to crop up purely for the sake of handling that money. We've alluded to in episode 61, Owning Change, and episode 59, Bankrupt Ethics, the, for example, the networks of nonprofits and NGOs that all exist to funnel money from one source like a wealthy donor or a wealthy government, to another, such as a social program or foreign aid money. But in any system that is designed for moving money around, inevitably what happens is these layers and layers of bureaucracy emerge so that part of those resources can be siphoned off at every layer. And this can get quite perverse. So in 2006, banks in the United Kingdom were found to have been defrauding their insurance clients. And as a result, they were ordered to give that money back. But to do that, a bureaucratic procedure had to be created to help distribute those funds to their rightful owners. And this was handled primarily by the big four accountant firms. So that's your Deloitte, your PwC, Ernst & Young, and KPMG. From Graeber's book, one of the people that wrote in to say his job was bullshit is a man named Elliot. And he was an accountant at one of these big fours. And he recalls that because they were paid for each case to distribute this money, and they paid him by the hour, his managers deliberately mistrained 
all these analysts for these jobs so that the contracts would inevitably have to be extended. And this would happen over and over, all for the sake of milking more money out of the process. Here's Graeber, quote, One could argue that the whole financial sector is a scam of sorts, since it represents itself as largely about directing investments towards profitable opportunities in commerce and industry, when in fact, it does very little of that. The overwhelming bulk of its profits comes from colluding with government to create and then to trade and manipulate various forms of debt. Just as much of what the financial sector does is basically smoke and mirrors, so are most of the information sector jobs that accompanied its rise as well. And uh, here's one more quote from Graeber that I think sums it up pretty well. And then we can move on, David. Quote, The more the economy becomes a matter of the mere distribution of loot, the more inefficiency and unnecessary chains of command actually make sense, since these are the forms of organization best suited to soaking up as much of that loot as possible. So financialization, the need for jobs. Well, that's a lot of stuff once more, Daniel. And this episode is sort of all over the map. We had a lot of examples. Now we're getting just very cloudy concepts of things. Uh, And I'd love to explore all this in more depth again in the future, especially sitting down with David once his schedule opens up and we can finally figure out the time. But uh, there's just a couple of things left that I think we need to touch on before we go out. And that's all under this larger umbrella of what can we do? And there's a lot of different things individually, culturally, but also in terms of the way that we sort of redefine our economy and what it means to survive today. And again, this is another topic that we're going to explore in more depth, but it deserves touching on just a little bit, and that is UBI or universal basic income. The idea that just for living in a nation uh, or or in a city, because it's been tested out in various cities, uh, you get a check. You don't have to qualify for anything. You don't you don't work for it. You just you are paid, say, a thousand dollars a month just for being. And this idea emerges because there are certain things that we assume people should be able to do. Certain inalienable rights as well. I'll even reach to say. Uh, But the fact that you should be able to house yourself and the fact that you should be able to feed yourself and you should be able to do that irregardless of your ability to work or your current level of employment. uh, I think that's a really important concept and something that universal basic income guarantees um, and, and pushes across. What it, I've got lots of personal problems with with various ways that people have talked about implementing UBI. Maybe we can talk about them in a moment. We'll definitely talk about them in the future. There are also alternative systems where we there's a talk right now as part of the Green New Deal to introduce a federal jobs guarantee. This sort of a related concept, but a very different way of implementing it and something I think that is ripe for creating a whole new field of, of bullshit jobs potentially. But um. Just quickly back to UBI, if you want to take this for a second, Daniel. I'm actually going to, uh, I want to introduce the concept of universal basic income, David, a little bit unconventionally, because there's a metaphor that Graeber employs in his book that I think is really powerful and a little bit odd at first. But, you know, much of office life today is oppressive. We have bosses and taskmasters who make us act a certain way. You know, we're not allowed to talk to each other. We're not allowed to look at our phone. We have to do certain things that we don't want to do. Scrub the baseboards, copy numbers into Excel that don't need to be copied. And it's, it's, a, dom, it's a form of domination, pure and simple. And Graeber relates this to the BDSM community, David. <laughs> yes, that's the sexual games that people play where you have these sexual roles of submission and domination. But there's a crucial difference between these two uh, situations where in the sexual games that people play, with these whips and hot wax and all that, 
There's always a safe word. Those who play the role of the submissive can at any time make it stop. They can say a word and those roles that they've assumed will go away. And and what you're left with is two people or maybe more who just care about each other and want what's best for each other. But we have organized our society of work largely around the same roles. We have those who dominate and those who must submit, except there is no safe word. There's no escape. A person forced to highlight forms or guard an empty room for seven hours a day while being abused by their bosses and supervisors, ultimately they cannot say that magic phrase, I quit, because that role is the only means by which they can live. But a basic income would solve that. It essentially allows us to transform the oppressive nature of work into the playful one of choice, where a boss can no longer abuse someone without consequence because that person can always just walk away. And so this kind of gets us into the the reasons why we would want something like a basic income, because it decouples the need for a livelihood from that of work. It decouples wages from work, and it frees us up as a society to reframe our values from one of wealth creation, you know, that is, you know, jobs just for the sake of it to accumulate wealth. And it allows us to turn our values instead to the social, the moral, the the kinds of questions we would ask, like, what kind of people do we want to be around? How should a human act? What should a good neighbor look like? We, we can't really ask those questions right now because we're too caught up trying to accumulate wealth so that we can afford to live. As an illustration, uh, David, I have a friend, uh, doesn't make a lot of money, is quite poor in fact, but every time they see a homeless person on the side of the street, sleeping without clothes on, or in some other precarious situation, they are compelled to stop whatever they are doing. They often drive to the store, buy some clothes, food. I've even seen this person buy a whole tent from Walmart just so that they can bring it back to this person and see if they're okay. And you know, she's not doing this because she works for some organization or some nonprofit. And in fact, much of her time is spent trying to find a job. And often she'll end up working as a cashier for a fast food joint or something like that. And it makes me wonder how much of our society loses out because people like this, who yearn to connect with others, who want to spend their time helping others to to solve a need in their community, have to instead divert their efforts to molding themselves into a cashier role because that is the only work our society values. We don't pay people to help others out of the goodness of their hearts. So from the perspective of our society's moral views on work, married to this system of wage labor as it is, my friend is more valuable to society making $8 an hour serving burgers or whatever it is than she is seeking out people in need. But ask anybody you know, their own personal feelings, and that's clearly not the case. We would clearly value uh, uh, that type of person over someone who would just choose money over helping other people. But it it makes me think, David, like, what would this person be able to accomplish if instead, as a society, we told her, look, don't worry about housing, don't worry about food, that's provided. That's what we as a society have decided is worth everyone having. Now you go do what you want. I guarantee you this person would be spending her time making the world a better place. And because there would be more people like her who are freed up to do the same, we might see her individual actions collaborated with others. We might see whole collectives of people joining together and using their collective effort to fill these needs. And, and I think that's really what this idea comes down to, is we need to separate this idea of money with our values. We need to decouple these values from work because right now, the only way that we really truly signify status in our culture is through consumption. 
right? Who has the best car? Who has the Versace belt? Who has the best apartment, the best house? That's how status is established. And it's because of this economic system. But if we could decouple this idea of consumption with status and this need to work to survive, what other ways might we create status? And this is so important because so many people will say, well, look, if we just provide everyone's needs, why would they work? And to me, it's a ridiculous question. What do you mean? How many people go exercise? They're not being paid to do that. They're doing it to, for a social reason. We all act out of social traditions, of habits. We want to look good to other people. We want to help other people. If we could free our time up from this pointless bullshit economy to actually serve human needs, we might value people differently. Instead of who has the best car, it becomes who's the best neighbor? Who hosts the best parties? Who's the best dancer? Who's the best musician? Who's the best person to go to for advice? Who bakes the best cookies, right? We have all these new values that we can uh, create in our society that we, we can't right now because the only way we can live is a bullshit job that pays our rent. You know, and the, uh, all of that is so completely true, Daniel. And I, I think those words, and I hope they are inspiring to people uh, listening to this. But I mean, there's this this fear in all of this process, especially when we talk about UBI as well. If we're just giving people money, why would they work? You know, why would they want to do anything? They're just going to be lazy and sit around and do nothing. If we provide them with houses and, and food, then what motivation do they have to go out and make things, to build stuff? And this is such a ridiculous notion and one that has evolved entirely because of so many bullshit jobs that we have where so many people resent their work and they say, well, yeah, if I wasn't getting paid, if I didn't have to do this, why on earth would I? But there are so many examples, and, and Graeber actually talks about this in the book, of people who create things, who work jobs where they, they're not bullshit jobs. They can see the products of their labor. They're not alienated from this process. And then they hit it big. They win the lottery or something. But they don't quit their work and, and relax like all of us in upper management or, or working in an office imagine about doing every day when we hold that $2 lotto ticket and hope we strike it big. No, and instead, they go back to work and keep doing it because it's something they enjoy. It, it, it's something that's rewarding and it has value to them because it turns out, and I, and I always hate saying this phrase, but there is some sort of human nature that likes to create, that likes to build things. And, and we, we can absolutely call that work. It's just this busy work that we've created because of the strange constraints of our economy and the needs to put people into creating whole industries that shouldn't exist except to, to lube up this ridiculous way that, that we've decided to allocate resources, things like advertising, lobbying, whatever. We want to create. It's, it's the human drive to build things, to make new ideas, to explore new concepts. And this not only is rewarding to us individually, but there is a social component to this. Like you mentioned, Tadl, you turn to someone and say, wow, that's an incredible song you've written. It's an incredible piece of art you've made. Wow, this invention that you put together is really inspiring and, and helps my day-to-day -day life. Thank you for this. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, there are examples of this in history. In, uh, and again, I'm not crazy about turning to uh, the Soviets for examples of stuff, but, but they had these things they called innovation workshops, where it was a workshop. You would come in and they had all the tools and supplies you might need and, and raw materials and stuff. And you could just create, you could just invent things. And people did. They came in there. There was no pay for this. There was no reward, but people just wanted to make their life a little bit better. And the government would come in and see somebody had created something, see it had value, and then start producing that and giving it to the rest of the people of the Soviet Union as well. 
And there were lots of problems in the larger way that all this stuff was structured, but the very different value of work and the way that we that they saw work versus the way that we saw work, uh, we absolutely came out on the losing side of this. And we are all the worse off for it. And the resentment we feel in the office when we talk about it's a Monday, the way that we look forward to weekends, the way that our souls are being constantly abused by these processes, by these bullshit jobs, either completely or in part, that we have to deal with every day, is that legacy. Finally, David, we're talking basically what can we do. And, and there's one thing I want to just throw out there, which is we all live in this bullshit economy at this point, but we still have this moral like conception of how valuable work is and how, how important it is to be disciplined and stuff. And so there's a lot of uh, conflicting emotions that people experience in these bullshit jobs where they realize that what they're doing is not important, yet they still feel guilty if they're not always looking built busy and making their managers think that they're up to something. And I want to say for your own personal health, don't feel guilty. These jobs represent spiritual violence. They are an assault upon our soul. They undermine the foundations of what it means to be human, to have a meaningful relation to the world around us, to socialize, to impact our environment. And so resistance to this is a form of self-care, a way to reassert our humanness. If your job makes you feel less than human, then fight back any way you can. And don't you dare feel guilty about that. Whether If you steal paper clips from the supply closet, good. <laughs> Keep doing it. Don't stop. You know, If you pretend to work while in reality you study a foreign language, or you read novels or listen to your favorite podcast, Ashes, Ashes, good. And maybe share it with your coworkers. The managers and supervisors who claim to own our time don't own us. And neither do they deserve your respect. Now, true, if you do want to get ahead in the corporate world and climb that ladder, you may have to play the game a bit, look the part, and that it will include telling your boss what they want to hear and playing nice with your coworkers. But inside your heart, don't ever give in. Your soul deserves to be free, and anyone that attempts to contain it is not worth your guilt or anxiety. But that's a lot to think about. And think about it, we hope you will. You can find more information on all these topics Find a link to David Graeber's book, as well as read a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use advertising to support this show. So if you like it, would like us to keep going, then you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, or visiting us at patreon.com slash ashesashescast and get yourself a sticker. We also have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. We encourage you to send us your thoughts. We really do appreciate them. And if email does not work for you, we are also on all your favorite social media networks at Ashes Ashes Cast. And if you visit our subreddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast, you can find a link to our Discord where Daniel and I and a lot of the other community hang out all day working on these things. So pop in, say hey, and let's build a little online place that we can call a community. Next week, we know we've been talking a lot about these social issues and these larger cultural components, but don't worry, we are turning back to some hard scientific material and the climate, and we hope you'll tune in for that. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.